just, uh, just for all of you, um, you know, we maybe have more people online with the, the cold today. We will have Zoom fellowship tonight if you just want to join and, and just connect with other people. Just kind of a, a free-for-all opportunity just to talk and share and pray with one another. That's at 6 to uh, 7 o'clock tonight. I'll send out a link beforehand. Um, but I, I want to say this, that uh, in America, during our days of when we're living right now, we live in a, a unique time in this world. Uh, we're living in a, a land full of riches. We live a, a life full of convenience in a time of free speech where you can speak a lot about Jesus, almost as much as you want to speak about Jesus, and you will face little trouble like many other in the world face, many others in the world face today and have throughout the, the course of time. The, yet the warning of the Bible is this. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In the book of Acts, we're seeing that persecution. But in America today, we face little of this. We can be bold and speak about Jesus, and we are protected by law, by our Constitution. The First Amendment of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, guarantees us freedom of speech, especially, particularly as it relates to religion. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech. Or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. God's been very gracious to us. Allows us to, uh, to follow after the Lord and the freedom of our conscience. And uh, this keeps many of us in America from facing persecution that Paul promised. That we would see if we live a godly life in Christ Jesus. But know this, it's unique to us. This is a unique to us and to our time. It has not always been so. I mean, throughout all time, telling of Jesus has been against the law in some places and earns you jail time. Um, in, in many countries today, in Arab countries today, it will earn you jail time. It is illegal in Nepal to convert people, to preach to them, to see them come to Jesus. It's, it's illegal today. Last week, um, I spoke to you about one of the most famous people ever to speak forth boldly of Jesus, finding his way into prison and torture was Richard Wormbrand, who was jailed for over, uh, over a decade. Fourteen years he spent in a Romanian prison. And when he was released, then he founded the organization Voice of the Martyrs, which has brought worldwide attention to those who are persecuted in other lands. This morning, though, I want to tell you about an obscure man who faced Christian persecution. And I am sure that you have never heard of this man. Maybe, 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 some, maybe one of you. Um, but I don't think so. Um, he lived in Nepal in the 1970s. I don't even know his last name. His first name is Kamal. He may have looked something like this. That's not him, all right? It may have looked something like this. And, and this man's story was told in one of uh, Thomas Hale's books, Living Stones of the Himalayas, subtitle, Adventures of an American Couple in Nepal. Uh, Thomas Hale was a, a physician, he was a doctor, and I think it was from the 1960s through and through the 90s that he uh, was a, a physician in Nepal. And so he saw Nepal in the church when it was like very small, hardly anything to grow much and bigger, and his stories are, are very helpful. Have any of you read these? Some of you? Maybe none of you. I know you have some. There are three of these books, huh? Not this one. They're, don't let the goats eat the loquat trees is the first one. They're hilarious stories 
just about what life in uh, Nepal was. And as they go on, they get more and more serious because the, the church is growing and they're facing persecution. I just want to tell you about uh, Kamal and the persecution he faced. And uh, throughout the book of Acts, as we face persecution, I just want to keep these persecution stories coming because they're helpful for us to set the stage. But when Kamal was 15, a man sold him a Nepali New Testament saying, this is a religious book. It will be good for you to read it. And Kamal took his new book home and began to study it. When he came to Matthew 5, 43 through 44, he was surprised to discover Jesus saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I've been taught to seek out my enemies and destroy them, Kamal told us. This teaching was just the opposite. And then he came to Matthew 18, 11 and read the words, The Son of Man came to save what was lost. And in a flash, Kamal realized that this was the God who came to save sinners and not destroy them, and that this was the God he must follow. And from that day on, Kamal related to us, I accepted Christ as God and determined to obey him. I stopped worshiping idols and threw away my holy thread. My father, of course, disowned me and turned me out of the house, telling me that I was never to enter again. So I found work in a government office in the village, but because I kept preaching about the God who saved sinners, the police and the governor of the district came and arrested me, and I was released from prison after a few days, but I lost my job. After that, I had to leave my village and even the district because of the opposition of the police. Finally, on a trip to western Nepal, he had been arrested and put in jail for 13 months for preaching and attempting to convert Hindus to Christianity. And uh, because he was, a, he was an itinerant preacher, I'm going to skip this part, he was an itinerant preacher traveling on foot from village to village encouraging small, isolated groups of believers sharing the gospel with anyone who would listen. And during that period, he's harassed by police on a number of occasions. And um, when he, he, uh, he, he was on this trip to the Himalayas, um, trying to convert Hindus to Christianity, and he joined up with this man, Pastor Suman. And Pastor Suman and Kamal had gone together on a preaching tour to the far western part of Nepal, and had been passing out literature to anyone who showed an interest. And one man who was particularly interested was a local police officer, officer posing as an ordinary citizen. And he approached the pair and asked them for something to read. And suspecting nothing, they gave him one of their pamphlets. Whereupon the police officer, proof in hand, arrested them for illegal religious activities and clapped them in jail. And there they stayed for 13 months. Out in a little far western Nepal, days away from friends, relatives, and unbelievers, and, and other believers. And if you know anything about Nepal, out west of Nepal is really rugged, really difficult. So it says he's several days from his friends at home. That is sure. And he said, quote, um, As far as anyone knew, the two might be incarcerated for the maximum sentence of six years since they had been engaged in evangelism. That's the penalty. Engaged in evangelism six years in prison. The last pastor imprisoned had served five years. Thus, when the news came, the pair were to be released after only 13 months. Many thanks were offered to God for answering the prayers of his people. In addition, we later learned that during their stay in jail, the two men had led 26 fellow prisoners to faith in Christ. That's how it works, right? Remember when Paul in Philippians chapter 1 was, was in jail? 
And he said, many people in the Praetorian Guard had come to faith in Christ. Um, but here's another story about a man who was, who was arrested and certainly had some sort of trial and thrown into prison where he served for preaching the gospel. And this is one of, of just thousands and thousands and thousands of stories that could be told of those who have been faithful to minister the words of Jesus to others and have been arrested and tried and, and put in prison. Some have been tortured. Some have just been in for a little bit, for a, for a day. Uh, that's the kind of persecution that we will see in uh, the book of, of Acts. And from the days of the apostles until today, there's always been those who have been uh, persecuted. Well, this morning, as we see in our text of, of Scripture, we're going to see the apostles brought to trial. So we're going to be looking at today. So you can open your Bibles if you haven't done so already to Acts chapter 5. We're looking at verses 21 through verse 32. And, and last week we saw the apostles placed in jail where they were to spend the night and to appear in trial the next day. The religious leaders were, were planning on bringing them in for questioning the next day, but God had other plans. The angel in the night had set them free and had told them, chapter 5 and verse 20, just picking up the context here, they said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. And the apostles responded in obedience. And the next morning at daybreak, they went right to the temple to do that very thing and spoke to the people the words of life to those who were present. And our text then begins halfway through verse 21 with a change of scene. We're changing the scene from the, court, from the temple now. We come into the courtroom and we read what happens. Verse 21. Then when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Here's the trial the apostles are facing. My, my first point is this, just assembling the court. This is what happens in verses 21 through 26. They're gathering all parties in one place so that this trial can convene. Because whenever you have a trial, you need to have a judge. Um, sometimes you need a jury. Um, but you need to have the, the prosecuting attorneys there. You need to have the defendant there and whatever defense attorneys you have. You've got to have all of this. And so far in verse 21, we see the gathering of the, the judge and all the prosecutors in this kangaroo court. Really is what it was. But it says this in verse 21. Now when the high priest came... And those who were with him, he called together the council, that is all the senate of the people of Israel. We, we've seen this high priest before. He presided over the first trial of the apostles we saw in chapter 4. 
Um, he also presided over Jesus in his trial as well. His name is Annas. He's a father-in-law to Caiaphas, who was officially in charge of the trial. So you have Caiaphas, but you got this kind of this father-father-in-law relationship where one's the older, really in power, but you have Caiaphas who's, who's officially in power, but the older one has the influence. But here he is, and then they have all the others, probably of the high priestly family, the same people who in Acts chapter 4 were there, the same people who are here uh, as well. So the, the council was there. That is the, <clears throat> the Senate of the people of Israel. That's 70 elders we're talking about. So here the apostles are, are, are planning to spend, whatever, be in front of all the 70 people, 80 people, uh, whatever it's going to be. A lot of people. The council was there. The only ones they lacked were the defendants. So as everyone assembled, they, they went and they called the defendants. Verse uh, 21. They sent to the prison to have them brought because that's where they, they thought they would be. And they summoned them, and, and their plan was the court police would go into the prison and then would, would bind the, the prisoners in shackles and, and bring them in safely, transported into the court where they can appear for the trial. And then comes the turn of events from their perspective. We've already got a glimpse of this, as we saw last week, when the, um, when the apostles were released and were out, out preaching. But this is from the... From the council's perspective, when, when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. And so they returned and reported. And I bet they said something like, um, sheepishly, we found the prison doors securely locked and the guards standing outside the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Totally unexpected. They were expecting to find prisoners in their cells, but they were not. The cells were empty. And as they looked and investigated, there were no signs of escape, no open doors, no unlocked doors, no holes in the wall, no, no tunnels through the ground, which I spoke last week, right, shows that the angel, as he opened the door, um, as it said last week, right, the, the angel, verse 19, opened the prison doors, brought them out. It means that the angel closed the door and then locked it from the inside so that, like, Nothing was changed at all. They couldn't tell. Miraculous. The prisoners, though, were simply gone, and it was unexplainable. And that's what we read in verse 24. Now, the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words. They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Well, no doubt they were perplexed because this was miraculous. It was unexplainable. There was, there was no explanation as to what happened. And here they are trying to understand the things. And uh, I'm sure that the, the, the prison officials were scared because in those days, if you were guarding the prison and a prisoner was released or, or escaped, you would pay for it with your life. And so these people were probably sweating, trying to figure out what, what's going on, like how this is. And I'm sure they breathed a big sigh of relief when someone, verse 25, breaks into the courtroom with a discovery. Someone came in and told them, verse 25, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. And this was totally unexpected. And I'm sure that there's some really measure of relief to know that the, the prisoners were, were located. But on the other hand, it was probably disconcerting. Like, how did the prisoners escape? Do we have an inside guy with one of the guards? Or, or how is it that they did that? It's interesting, they never asked this question. I, I sense they knew it was miraculous, and they didn't want to hear about the miraculous again. They, they'd already heard about the miraculous in chapter 4, about the, the lame man born. They said, we can't, we can't 
deny this miracle. And there would be another miracle they can't deny. And so they just, they stayed away from it. You won't see it mentioned at all. You won't see any digging. Like, how is it that he went out? Because they don't have an opportunity then to testify about the angel out there. So they had the question about how the prisoners escaped. And, and I think they had a question about also, why are they still in the temple preaching? Like, that's where we captured them before. Why would they go back and do that in such a, a public way? But hearing that, they sent once again for the prisoners, this time not to the prison, but to the temple. And we read in verse 26, And the captain with the officers went and brought the people, but not by force, for they're afraid of being stoned by the people. Now, this, this was different than the scene within the prison would have been. Within the prison, they would have been you know, roughed up a little bit, placed in shackles, forced them to come to the officers. But not so in the temple area. The apostles were surrounded by a crowd, a favorable crowd to the, office, to the apostles, not to the officers. And, and these people were listening to the apostles preach. And, and no doubt, they were hearing about the miraculous release from prison. Right? Because the people had seen them captured, seen them placed in prison, wondering like, well, why are you here again? It's a little bit like in John chapter 6 when, when Jesus walked on the water. It was like, well, you were here, but how is it you're over here? And they're kind of they're confused about that. So I'm sure that the apostles were, were telling them about their angelic release. And, and no doubt they were telling about how the angel opened the door and how he commanded them to come to the temple to preach these words of this life. And so they said, okay, well, We'll preach these words. And so they went and did so at daybreak, right? The place where they told them to, to preach. And no doubt they were preaching the words of life. No doubt they were saying words like this. Like God raised up Jesus, was crucified in Jerusalem by the leaders of Israel. And yet raised up from the dead. And we saw him alive indeed. He's the Messiah. The Lord has given to us. If you come to him and if you repent and believe, you can know forgiveness of sins and be brought into his kingdom. These are words of life. And I'm sure those were the sorts of words that they were preaching because the angel told them to preach the words of this life. And right there, though, as they're preaching, I'm sure the, the captain, the officials were approaching. Almost if I'm preaching here and some, some policemen start coming right up in front of, of the auditorium here. And I'm sure there were words were exchanged and the authorities requested for them to come to the council. And here, the apostles went. Uh, we sense here there's no fuss. Um, they didn't need to be forced to go. They, they didn't need to be shackled in, in any way. They didn't resist. Their word was enough. We will follow you. We will come. And, and the question really comes, why did they do this? They didn't have to go. The crowds were on their side. They were in friendly territory. If they would have resisted in, in any way, the, I'm sure that the, the crowd would have uh, dealt with it and would have overpowered these officers. In fact, that's even what it says, that they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So you say, why is it they went? I think it was to show their submission to the governing authorities. See, the apostles weren't looking to mount an insurrection. They weren't looking for a takeover. They, they weren't looking to fight militarily. Their kingdom was not of this world. They were looking for peace. They're looking to bring peace to Israel through the message of the life of Messiah. And so they went, and the court was convened. And in verse 27 and 28, we see the prosecution. This is the prosecution really sets their case. Really, it's sort of, sort of just questioning, if you will. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, the high priest brings back some context. He brings back to the first time 
that Peter and John had stood before that religious council. And he said, we strictly charge you not to preach or teach in this name. And that's almost an exact quote from Acts 4, verse 18, which Luke says, right? They, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, a, a subtle point here. The religious authorities were not able to bring themselves to mention the name of Jesus. Listen to how they delivered it back and forth the first trial. Acts chapter 4, 16 and 17. Look, look at what they said. They said this. What shall we do for these men? And talking about this lame man. For though a notable sign has been performed through them, is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, we cannot deny it. So what are we going to do? But in order that it might not spread further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So don't speak to anyone more in this name. If you look in, in uh, verse 19, uh, verse 18, then it's Luke who describes, they told them not to teach all in the name of Jesus. I think... Luke added that. I think they, they didn't want to speak at all the name of Jesus. Look, they speak the same way here in verse 28. We strictly charge you to, not to teach in this name. Yet here you'd fill Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They, they just couldn't bring the, They couldn't say his name. He was such a hated man. All they could say was this name and this man. Now we all knew who they're referring to. Everyone knew who they're referring to. They're talking about Jesus. But they would not utter that name. How ironic that Peter told them in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, just days earlier, right? There's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But they can't even say the name of Jesus so as to be saved. That was their hatred towards Jesus. That was their hatred towards the disciples of Jesus, right? Who didn't stop talking about Jesus. Instead, they spoke much about Jesus. So much so, the high priest said, here again in verse 28, he said, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Now, that's, that's an indictment on the one hand, right? That, that everyone knows about the teaching of Jesus now. But on the, on the other side, it's really a, a compliment, is it not? These disciples had done exactly what Jesus had commanded them to do. Before Jesus left them, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he told them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And here they're being told by the unbelievers that they have filled Jerusalem with their teaching. That is, everyone in Jerusalem knew about their message. Everyone in Jerusalem had heard about Jesus who was crucified, dead, and buried, risen from the dead. The news traveled. It got around. Like I remember in the early days of COVID-19, it was it was so interesting how in just a few days back in March of last year, like somehow everybody got the memo and, and all of a sudden masks were on every place like like they heard like the the news spread. And I think that's similar here, like the news spread. Everyone got the memo. Everyone in Jerusalem heard the words of this life that Jesus was alive and well that he was reigning in heaven. And, and everyone in Jerusalem knew that Jesus was calling them to repent and believe. Yet that's the very thing the religious leaders refused to do. They refused to repent of their sin. They refused to believe in Jesus. They could not even mention his name. Such was their hostility. But thousands in, in Jerusalem were believing and creating such a stir that there was not a soul left in ignorance. I just got to stop here for some application and just some reflection. 
Oh, that this might be true in our day, right? that, that it could be said of us. We have filled Rockford with the teaching of Jesus. Or Rockford area, right? Whether it's Winnebago or Loves Park or McChesney Park or Cherry Valley, right? We have filled the Rockford area with our teaching. Could that be said of us? And it's, it's interesting is that uh, I feel we have a long way to go. Because as I mix and mingle with people, as I talk with them, how few understand the gospel. Few understand well enough even to be saved from their sins. And uh, the, the church in Rockford, I, I, I trust, is in the thousands. As there are many churches and many Christians. We just need to continue to go out and press. There might be witnesses in this area. Let me just, halfway through my message, let me just pray for that. Okay? Father, I would pray that you might help us to do our part in filling Rockford with this teaching of the name of Jesus. Filling Rockford with the words of life so that many could be confronted with the gospel of of Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, buried, risen, exalted. God, that people would know and understand that he calls people to repent and believe in the gospel. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to open our mouths and be witnesses here and in our spheres of influence and the people that we see, God, that we might do our part to fill Rockford with this teaching. And we need you, oh God, to do that. And we pray and we long for that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the final charge the high priest brought to the apostles. First of all, he said they were disobedient. We told you not to preach. You preached. And not only did you just preach, you really preached and filled Jerusalem with our, with our blood. And then he says this in verse 28. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now here when he says us, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, he's talking about the religious leaders. He says, you followers of Jesus have pointed to us as this Sanhedrin, this religious body, as responsible, the guilty ones, for killing Jesus. And, and that's true. That's exactly true. That's, they got the message. Yes, the apostles were preaching that the religious leaders were responsible for crucifying Jesus. Look, look back in chapter 2 and verse 36. So this is the first sermon, day of Pentecost. Come right down to the conclusion, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom, what? You crucified. Right here. Yes, you're the one who's responsible. It's your blood. Your, your hands are responsible for this blood. You put him to death. But that wasn't the only time that these apostles pointed to the religious leaders. Look over chapter 3 and verse 15. Right, verse 14 says, You denied the Holy and Righteous One, asked for a murder to be granted to you. That pictures back the scene of Pilate when uh, they, they took Jesus and they, they murdered the Righteous One, but they took a wicked one in its place. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Here it is. You put him to death. You're responsible for that. If you will, they are, are putting this man's blood upon the religious leaders. That's what they're saying. And that, was, that wasn't the only time. Look at chapter 4 and verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, 
whom God raised from the dead. By this name is this man standing before you well today. The religious leaders were responsible for crucifying Jesus. And we can only assume that every sermon that we have read, Acts 2, Acts 3, and Acts 4, every sermon, it's always pointing to them as the ones who killed Jesus. And we can only assume that then, if those are the ones that are recorded, certainly that was a major theme throughout all of their preaching and all of their teaching was against the establishment of the day. The same message many times. In fact, so much so the religious leaders caught this. They said, you're bringing his blood upon us. That, that, that you're saying that we're responsible for killing Jesus. And, and we, we don't want that. And how quickly they forget. <laughs> Because this is exactly the thing they wanted to be known for. Remember when Pilate was in, um, interrogating Jesus and Pilate found nothing wrong in him and repeatedly tried to release him? And uh, he, even at one point, he, he said, I find no guilt in this man. And the people said, no, crucify him, crucify him. And he said, I'll tell you what, uh, Passover, I normally release a prisoner as a sign of goodwill between us Romans and you Jews. How about here? I'll release Jesus for you. And they said, no, we don't want Jesus. We'll take Barabbas, this insurrectionist, this murderer. We'll, we'll take him, not the holy and righteous one. And when again, he tried to release Jesus. Listen, I'm just going to read Matthew 27, 22 and 23. What shall I do with Jesus who'd called Christ? And they said, let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Continuing on, we read this. So Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning. So he took water and washed his hands before the crowd. says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And you remember what they said? These were the Jewish leaders. These were the, the Sanhedrin who were judging and telling Paul, uh, telling Peter here rather that you're intending to bring this man's blood against us. These people said to, to Pilate, they said, his blood be upon us and our children. Let, let his blood be upon us. They were saying basically this, Pilate, you're having a difficult time deciding what to do with Jesus. You finding him innocent will blame us. Let us take the blame. We're the ones that convinced you his blood be on us and our children. And now... When the apostles are actually saying this, the religious leaders don't like this very much at all. They're saying, you're intending to fill this, uh, bring this man's blood upon us. And how often the case is this with our sin. Then in the midst of our sin, we're bold and we're enjoying it. We want the world to know. Only later then we realize what happened. We're like, uh, no, I, I don't. I know I said that, but I don't, I don't really want that. And I, I think about the insurrectionists on the Capitol building, whatever, January 6th or whenever that was. How many times you see pictures of these guys? Hey, look what we're doing. We're storming the Capitol. And in the midst of that process, they were so happy and delighted that they were going to come and take over the, the government. And then as things wound down and they realized, you know what? That's a, that's a capital offense. That's a felony. And many of these people now are in jail. But at one time, they're boasting about it. We'll do that in the midst of the, the crowds. And they're saying, oh, his blood be upon us. But now they realize, no, we don't want his blood upon us. Just, just know that it is with your sin. That when you're in your sin, you're blinded to what is true and what is right. And you're going to boldly say some things that you will regret later. 
And what should that cause? It should cause repentance. These, these, these leaders should have said, yeah, you're bringing his blood upon us and you're right, it is upon us. And we feel bad about that. We are, we are wrong and we repent and, and we want to turn. But there was no sign of repentance here among the religious leaders. They were obstinate. They were against the disciples. They didn't want to hear anything about the name of Jesus. Well, that was their case. They presented it. And now we get finally to the defense. And, and what I love here about the defense, this is when, uh, when the apostles respond and they speak, is that these really are the words of the Holy Spirit. Certainly they are recorded for us. But Jesus promised them in Luke chapter 12 and verse 12, Jesus said this. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious how you will defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And so here it is, that very hour, this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. Don't worry, the Holy Spirit's going to give you words and teach you. These are going to be his words. And so Peter speaks his words. Peter and the apostles answer, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Here, Peter's justifying begins by by justifying their defiance to the Sanhedrin. He said, we must obey God rather than men. And that's why we were preaching when you told us not to preach. And this should have come in no surprise to the Sanhedrin. The disciples had warned them the first time when they were brought in that that's what they would do. Peter and John were the, told these same people, Acts chapter 4, 19 and 20. He said this, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to men, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. Right. Speaking to others is something that they, they just couldn't even stop doing. And said, so you judge it right. You told us not to speak, but we need to obey God. You judge it. We can't stop. And so they basically went out of there with that verbal warning, says we can't stop. And they went out and spoke exactly what they said they were going to do. And, and that was not only by like compulsion, but also by obedience. The marching orders of Jesus was to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. They were just told to go out and speak, and they did by obedience. We need to obey God rather than men. And speaking about Jesus, filling Jerusalem with their teaching, the apostles were merely doing what they had been told by the Lord. And Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. Not we might, or not, not we should, or, or not we ought, but we must. Like, this is, this is what is within us. We have no other choice. Deep in their conscience, they were compelled to preach the gospel to those in Jerusalem. They saw no other option. They had to do it. And, and this year, obeying God rather than men, that's the principle of civil disobedience. It is the principle we have a higher authority. See, God is the higher authority than the government. Right? When our government authorities tell us not to do something commanded by God, we disobey. And we obey our higher authority and do the very thing they tell us not to do. Or when our government authorities tell us to do something prohibited, we, we don't obey the lower authorities. We obey the higher authority. And we disobey them, but we obey the Lord. 
You know, maybe it's a, it's a little bit like kids and parents, right? Or, or maybe friends and parents. Parents will tell you one thing, and yet kids will, like, maybe be sucked to do something else. But who's the higher authority? Is it, is it fellow friends or parents? It's parents who are the authority, right? And, and, and one who's walking rightly with the Lord will say, yeah, I need to obey my parents rather than my friends. I need to follow their wishes to the extent that their wishes are right. If their wishes are wrong, obviously, then, then you don't. But here, we must obey God rather than man. How simple, how easy, yet how difficult to practice. Can you amend to that? Uh, it, with COVID, that has been an amazing thing this past year. Uh, many people have looked at this verse and then used it for their actions with COVID. How we must obey God rather than men. And, and particularly as it relates to our gathering together, right? We're commanded to gather together. Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The Bible calls us together. And I'm sympathetic to you online. I mean, some of you are a long ways away, whether that's in um, uh, Colombia or uh, in Arizona. I have on, enjoy the warmth. She is down there. Um, or, you know, maybe there's some specific travel things today. That's, that's fine. But here's my challenge to you who are online, if it is by choice. Um, how are you going to stimulate one another to love and good deeds if you're at home? You can't. It's difficult. Or maybe it takes a lot of work outside of our, our gathering is to be making some calls and making some emails. If you're home, it's just, it's just difficult to do that. We, we found that out this summertime. It's very interesting. What, what I've learned is that online worship can be a vertical experience, which is great. Which is what vertical experience is. But church isn't just this. Church is this and this. And so if you're home, you're getting this maybe if you're like tuning in and really following along, right? And now there, there's some who need to stay away and I'm appreciative of that. You need to do that. But there's some, I would confess, are probably at home by choice. But you might do this well, but you can't do this. And and with coronavirus, there have been some, some difficulties with that. I mean, at first... Right? You remember when it came out, we didn't know anything about it, whether we could meet it all together, whether, whether we come together. We, we didn't know, and the government said stay at home, and we didn't know how effective this would be, and we were, we were in our homes. And I remember I, I received a call that week from a man who was reading through my sermons on the Internet, and he was preaching through First Peter. He's way out in Podunksville, Colorado someplace. And uh, he was reading my, my sermon on First Peter chapter 2, verses... Uh, 13 to 17, which speaks about this whole principle about, it says this, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by them to punish the evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And uh, in that sermon, I had talked about gathering for worship. And I said, well, of course, if the government tells us we can't worship, and we can't gather for worship, of course we're going to gather. Like, there's a clear command, right? Hebrews 10 is a clear command of that. And he called me up. Like, so I'm talking, right? Friday the 13th was when COVID hit in March, right? So he's calling me up, like, to 20th to say, well, what are you guys doing? Are you worshiping together? And um, I said, no, we're not. He said, oh, we are. We're, you know, he's probably gun-toting. Colorado, you know, but he said, oh, we're doing that. And he just confronted me with my own words. But 
you know, kind of in that time where it's easy to apply, right? We must obey God rather than man. In that time when we knew so little and we didn't understand what the virus was about, we're like, okay, and we're, we're off for, for many weeks. Then we could be outside as we've gathered together. I think we've gathered with some safety precautions on there. Um, but there was just the balance of how, how to do it or how to not. Uh, and there are churches that have even defied uh, the governmental authorities. We must obey God rather than men. No, we are going to gather, and we're going to gather without masks. I found out this week even of a, a church in town that's gathering totally maskless. And uh, you know what? They, <laughs> they are growing like crazy. Well, like from 50 to 100. And uh, I, I know the pastor, but I'm just trying to think... Um, what kind of people are being brought in and what happens when COVID is over? What's going to happen? And I would not wish that kind of growth at all. Of just the, um, the gun-toting, one-side, anti-masking kind of group. And, you know, we've sought to, to, to work out things here with, with COVID-19 in such a way that just understanding what masks are. They're asked to the government to, to do what we can do to show your love towards other people. But... The, uh, out of out of obedience, and I, I remember even uh, I was talking with a Christian friend of ours, and I talked about how a mask is a symbol of love. How you can wear a mask, and what it says is, I don't know if I'm contagious or not, and out of love to you, I will wear my mask, and tried to couch it that way, and was mocked like, <laughs> what are you talking about, Matt? <laughs> Because we must obey God rather than man, and even uh, I read on the internet this week about someone who wrote this. It says, "Quote." My Bible-based religious beliefs morally prevent me from wearing a COVID-19 mask or covering. Nothing more needs to be said. We ought to obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29. So this verse is really just, and I, I just, it's been, whoa, on both sides trying to figure out, trying to figure out this issue, right? And I, I just difficult. Easy to understand, difficult to apply, and we're still working through applying things of that for sure. Well, let's get to Peter's defense. That's, he kind of addressed this whole deal about preaching and fulfilling Jerusalem with the blood. And then he said this. Here's his defense. He says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Note what Peter's talking about here, right? Broad general outline. He speaks about verse 30. He speaks about the resurrection of Jesus. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. He speaks about the death of Jesus, again, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And again, just even see there. So you're intending to fill Jerusalem with our blood for this, this man. You're laying it in our hands. You're intending to bring this man's blood upon us. And sure enough, they did. You're right. You killed him. But we got the resurrection. We got the death. We got verse 31. We got the exaltation. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. And then we have implications. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And then he adds now that we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, by the way, this looks a lot like what Peter said on other occasions. You can look back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. We see these these main things, right? We see death, 
We see resurrection. We see exaltation. Look at 22. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attests to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst of yourselves. No, he started the life of Jesus. Now he goes to the death of Jesus. Verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lost men. So there's the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and now the resurrection. Verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he goes on all this thing about talking about how the resurrection was was half had to take place because it was referred in Scripture. This Jesus, verse 32 now, God raised up, of that were witnesses, and now then he's exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he's poured out this that yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's poured out the, the Holy Spirit in the day of Pentecost. So the same thing, right? The, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus... The, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus, even you put the ascension in there, like, like just kind of bringing through the whole life of Jesus. You can put it in those categories. Life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, exaltation. And that's what he did on the day of Pentecost. That's in Acts chapter 3, similar sorts of things. Look at verse 14, Acts chapter 3. You denied the holy and righteous one. So in his life, he was a holy and righteous. You asked for a murder be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. So there's his life, and there's his, his death, and, but God raised him. And to this we are witnesses. And look then, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Right? The, the implication is repent and turn and believe, and your sins will be forgiven. Death, resurrection, exaltation, witness, forgiveness. This, this is roughly the, the outline that, that Peter uh, gives here. That's what he, he preached about. He, he preached, and it's interesting here, it's not a formula. So even get that in your mind, that what he preached was not formulaic. In fact, even here, he switched them just by way of how his sentence came out. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. That is, raising him from the dead, lifting him up out of the tomb, raising him, giving him life. He said, which Jesus is that? That's the Jesus whom you killed by hanging on a tree. That hanging on a tree is a, is a reference, really, to the Old Testament. Um, I don't know the reference right offhand, but it's a reference to the Old Testament. It says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so this is the one that you cursed by hanging him on a tree. Actually, that's the very one whom God raised from the dead. And the picture there is wonderful because really being hung on a tree as a curse, Jesus was a curse for us. It says in Galatians 3, he became a curse for us that we might know his righteousness. But there's the resurrection first, the death second. And uh, then 31, he's, he's talking then about his exaltation, his, his, his ascension and then exaltation. Where is he right now? Psalm 110, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And now he's, he's exalted. He's the, the leader and he's the savior. Right? He is the one who's gone before us. He is the one who's saving us from our sins. And, and he's the one. Now there, he's up there. right? He's giving repentance to Israel. He's the one who offers forgiveness of sins. He's the one that gives it. Uh, we even see in Acts chapter 11 and verse 18 is when God grants repentance to the Gentiles also that leads to life. Here, here's God. He's the one that gives faith. He's the one that grants repentance. He's the one that grants forgiveness. 
That's the whole implication about him being exalted on high. And again, then verse 32, right? We're witnesses of these things. How often? Did you see how often that raised up about how we are our witnesses, right? We saw these things, Acts chapter 3 and verse 15. To this we are witnesses, right? We've seen this, Acts chapter 2 and verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, none of that we are witnesses. So he's saying it's really true about the life of Jesus. This is really true, and we are our witnesses. And not only us, but also the Holy Spirit. Remember Luke 12, 11 and 12, which speak about when you speak, it's going to be the Holy Spirit who speaks. As they speak these things, the Holy Spirit also is the one who is speaking to those who obey him. And they are obeying him. Right? Verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. We're obeying God. Then we have the Holy Spirit, and we're speaking the truth, and the Holy Spirit is witnessing through us. And, and so I just, I just would encourage you, right, when, when preaching to others, when thinking about, okay, so what do I say to others? When, I, when, I, when I'm just encouraging you, right, Jesus says to be my witnesses, uh, just realize that being a witness of Jesus means basically to say these things. That, that Jesus lived a perfect life. He was holy and righteous. He was crucified. He, he died at the hands uh, of those in Israel. But though he was buried on the third day, he rose from the dead and is now exalted. And he is the Lord to whom we need to bow the knee. And if you do, forgiveness of sins will come. So maybe I need to rethink a little bit how I, I tell people what I do, right? My, I have the greatest job in the world. I'm a pastor. I get to study and teach the Bible to people and tell them how their sins can be forgiven through maybe the, the righteous Jesus who is crucified but raised from the dead. Forgiveness through his name. I don't know. I just need to think through how to, how to say that perhaps. But I just encourage you, right? When you're thinking about speaking to people, just talk about the broad generalities of the life of Jesus. This is the gospel. Turn over, just like I close. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can turn right over there. I've, I've printed it right there on screen. This is Paul speaking about the gospel. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And this, by the way, is the gospel. It says in chapter 15, verse 1, I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and which you are being saved if you hold fast the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Right? So if you really believe this, continue in your belief, you will be saved. You are being saved if you just believe this. He says, here it is. Here's the first important. Here's the gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And, and in my overhead, what I tried to do here is just the bullet points of what he's talking about. Here's the first importance. Here is the gospel. See, the, the gospel is, is historic news. The gospel is good news of an event that took place that has implications in our lives. It was an event that took place prophesied by Scripture to be interpreted by Scripture so that we understand what it means. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. So he died, but why did he die? He died for our sins, and that's what the scripture spoke about. But there's a death, and then he was buried. There's his burial. And then we see his resurrection on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The scriptures foretold that he would raise from the dead. Exactly who he said he would be. And then this this whole idea, the fourth point about how he appeared. That's merely just assumed that's 
That's merely confirming the fact that he is indeed alive and real. He appeared to Cephas, that's to Peter, to the twelve, that's the twelve apostles who are standing right here before the Sanhedrin right now. And then he even appeared to more than 500 at one time. It's really true, right? You can talk to any of these people, they're witnesses. So the idea of Acts is to be my witnesses. So here's my challenge to you. As you think about people who you encounter, you have an opportunity to be a witness. You say, Steve, what do I say? Just talk about, let me, I believe in Jesus. He was crucified, dead, buried, raised the third day. In fact, that sounds a lot like the Apostles' Creed, right? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ, the only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to Hades. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. There's, there's the Apostles' Creed just talking about that same thing. The death, the burial, the resurrection, the exaltation. And just encourage you, you should even think about that, that as you speak to others, the good news, right? Because inevitably, right, when you talk with people, they're going to get you off into talking about other things. Yeah, well, what about this? Yeah, well, what about this? Well, why do these bad things happen? And why is this in the world? Or why, how do you explain this? And you can maybe try to do that, but I would say just be comforted to know that if you just stay with this simple outline, you won't be off. In your mind, may this be the... The, the, the thing that keeps you just right there. This is, this is my message. i got to get back to the message. Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And we can believe and trust that His resurrection guarantees our forgiveness of sins. So just simplify it, just like that, that you want to be a witness for Jesus. So that's how the apostles, when they give opportunity to be witnesses, so they said, and I think their outline is good enough for us as well. So let's pray that we would do that. So... Father, I pray, even as I broke in the middle of my message today, God, just dreaming of filling Rockford with the name of Jesus. Father, I would pray that you would um, help us to know how to fill Rockford in the name of Jesus. God, through just a simple outline of the, the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, exaltation of Jesus. God, that he was the one who lived the perfect life for us. He died for us on the cross. that we might know forgiveness of sins. God, he was raised to vindicate everything that he said. He's exalted now as Lord, that we need to bow our knees to him. God, and so I pray that we would be bold to make that news known. God, help me, even in this week, to just think about how I might speak with people, uh, just about Jesus and about who he is and the hope that he brings. And so grant us this grace, just as you granted the the apostles here, that when they stood before kings and governors, they wouldn't need to worry because the Holy Spirit would, would give them words to say. And so likewise with us, O oh Lord, we need to um, simply uh, just speak what we know. The simple outline of the life of Jesus. Good news that he came and died for us, that we can believe and be forgiven. So strengthen us in these things, O oh Lord, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.